Good day, my friends. This is Under Review, the tennis podcast from an insider's perspective. I'm Craig Shapiro, and on the show, I talk with the most interesting voices in the sport. We've got a great show for you today. The U.S. Open has wrapped up. Bianca Andreescu won the women's title. Daniil Medvedev won the hearts of the world. And Rafa won his 19th major title, and by all accounts, has been virtually unstoppable. And with Rafa being so dominant this year, we figured it was time to hear from our first Spanish guest. We were at the tournament. Walking through the grounds, we saw many friends, colleagues, and familiar faces. And one in particular was holding Eurosport's microphone and breaking down the tennis in Spanish. I met him when he was 22 and about to crack the top 10. And I remember thinking that he and the Spaniards he was amongst were really the start of the new phenomenon. Alex Carecha was part of the first Spanish team to win the Davis Cup. On his own, he was two in the world, beating Becker and Agassi, Quirin and Kafelnikov. And pretty much everyone remembers him as the unfortunate victim of a puking Pete Sampras in prime time at the U.S. Open. He and Carlos Moya led to Feliciano Lopez, to Tommy Robredo, which led to David Ferrer, and of course, Rafa Nadal. Alex Karecha is going to tell us what he thinks is going on inside the ATP, what it was like to play a 16-year-old Rafa Nadal, and how his greatest foe was Mother Nature. We met up with Alex at his hotel the day before the men's final. We are in the Parker Meridian uh, on... Really, there's entrances on both 57th and 56th Street between 6th and 7th Avenue. We're in room 3204. This is like a junior suite. This is as good as you could get for a room here. Um, were you relaxing on the couch and then you move to the bed? You do a little of both? Yeah, it depends on what do I need to do. Mainly if I'm having dinner, which I've been having dinner for the last 15 days, mainly room service here on this little table. Quesadillas. <laughs> This is chicken quesadillas Come on. and burgers. You've been working hard. Yeah, but I have no time. I came back home very late, so I just take time to eat and just to relax while I'm coming back. The, the gentleman uh, you hear with a Catalan accent is former world number two, two-time French Open finalist, a participant in one of the greatest matches that was ever played at the U.S. Open. Alex Karecha. I feel like I had a drink with you maybe 10 years ago at the U.S. Open in the middle of the afternoon when we said hello. My man, it's so good to be here. Pleasure for me. It's unbelievable to meet after a while. We haven't seen each other. So thrilled to be with you. Listen, we do a five-set format. Our first set, we call it the Off the Court Report. Okay. Now... You are Eurosport. Yes. Explain that. I'm commentating matches for Eurosport for whole Europe. Uh, I'm actually commentating for Spain and I'm doing interviews for whole Europe, which I have the chance to do these flash interviews off the court when the guys or the girls are winning. And then we do a studio sometimes. I'm working with Mats Villander and Barbara Shett on the program Game Shett and Mats. They treat me so well. I'm so happy because we are also with Boris Becker from time to time with Ivan Lender, with John McEnroe. So it's a pleasure for me with Patrick Muratoglu as well. And I'm just thrilled. I'm so happy to be here. And also I do work for Spanish TVE as a commentator and also doing interviews when I'm back in Spain. No, hold on a second. So Eurosport. Yes. You do it in English. Yes. And you don't broadcast in Spanish. 
No, I do broadcast in Spanish. When I'm commentating the matches. Okay, so I, you so you basically broadcast the match. Yes. And then you bounced and you and do the. And then I just run straight to the court to do the interview to the winner. Like, uh, and if it's Rafa, I do it in Spanish. If it's Serena Williams, I do it in English. If it's the Italian, sometimes I do it in Italian. Uh, I speak a little bit of French too, so I don't speak great, but I can defend myself. But you're one of the hardest working people out there right now. Uh, I love to do it. I'm doing like, let's say, maybe 12 hours a day on the club, but I enjoy it so much. Now you just do the four slams and that's it, or you do other? No, I do three slams actually, because we don't have the rights from Wimbledon. And then I'm doing Barcelona and Madrid for Spanish TV. And that's it, I'm doing like, uh, let's say eight weeks a year for tennis. And what do you do the rest of the year? The rest of the year I have my own brand, Correcha brand, sports clothes. I'm looking at this, he's got his shirt. It's a poly yeah. with a little bit of a print and it's got a, it's got a C as the logo and right under it's his last name, Correcha. Yeah. How'd well, that come about, man? Well, you remember Sheng Shalken, the Dutch guy. Sheng Shalken, of course. He's, he's got his own company, like his own brand. Shang Sports in Holland, so they wanted to move that to Spain. And now we just started Correcha Brand, and I'm really thrilled to do that. I do some uh, clinics sometimes in Spain as well for companies. I do conferences, like motivational, like... Uh, you do? Yeah. And do you live in Barca? I live in Barcelona, close by, 20 minutes in Sant Cugat. I have four kids, three daughters, and um, one boy is one for my new wife, so they are 16, Aroa, Carla, 14. Pablo, 14, and we have a new kid in common, new daughter, Erika, two and a half, so quite busy. Come on, man. And, and where are they? They went back home. They, they were, were here for two weeks. Oh, they were? But they need to go back to school, yeah. And did you do any fun things here in New York or you just worked every day and that was it? No, no, that's why we came one week before, because we went to, to see lots of things here in New York, which I never had the chance, so we had so much fun. And for them, it was a great experience. And then while I was working the first week, they were just sightseeing and we stay here in this room. We had that room next to us as well because we are six of us. So that's why we need a, like a big room. Well, it's a good thing you made a lot of money on the tour to afford that. So what's, what, what was the, did you go to the, do you see the dinosaurs? With uh, we went to National Museum, uh, then we went to St uh, Liberty Statue, and then we went, went to- Went to the Statue of Liberty. Uh, sorry, the other way around, yeah. We went to Top of the Rock, we went to Brooklyn. What was their number one thing that they liked the best? They liked everything. They like everything. Everything. It's here, it's New York, everything is like so exciting, and it's like nice just to walk around and look, you know, and just enjoying different city and uh, different atmosphere. And you, you learn a lot from this city as well. And how uh, often do you, does someone stop you and say, oh man, you look familiar, I remember you. Does that happen a lot? Well, if they're Spanish, yes. What about gringos? Do they, like, is gringos, if I'm at the club, the US Open, uh, from time to time, yes. But I changed a lot because I have such a gray hair now, I have beer. Uh, you look, you I'm, look a little I'm, bit older. I'm, I'm you still look good, man. Yeah, I'm getting bald. <laughs> but so for Spanish people, yes, because they keep on seeing me like on TV. So when they see me, oh, even if we were working here in New York, they say, hey, how you doing? What are you doing? How are you doing for the Open? Blah, blah, blah. But sometimes when they see my name, when I'm like having like the credential on, it's like, wow, are you Alex Gretchen? I'm like, yes. Oh, I used to see you play and I was nice. But when they see my face, they look at me like, oh, he looks familiar, but I really don't know. Come on, man, you look good, man. Jeez. Oh, thank you, man. 
speaking of looking good, September is Stan Smith Month over on our Patreon page. Sign up to become a patron of Under Review, and you'll have early access to my interview with Stan Smith and be entered into a chance to win his shoes. Not his personal shoes, that would be bizarre, but ones with his name on it, brand spanking new Stan Smiths. Just sign up by the end of the month at any level to be entered to win. It's Stan Smith Month. Hear the podcast, win the shoes, and all the while support us at Under Review. It's patreon.com slash underreviewtennis. P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash underreviewtennis. We really appreciate all the support. Let's get back to Alex Karecha. Let's move into our second set. Uh, we call this the On the Court Report. Okay. Um, what can you tell us about Rafa that we don't know? I mean, have you ever hit with him? I played with him a couple of times in tournament. You did? Yeah. Come on, man. How, how, uh, head to head, 2-0 for me. I, we need to remember. Oh, you beat him. Uh, we need to remember you, that. Oh, you have wins over a young, young Rafa? He was, Tell us. Probably, he was like 17, but I beat him in Barcelona. And then I beat him in Madrid. Score? I think 3-6, 6 2 or something. And then in Madrid, like 6-4 or 7-5 in the third or something very tight. Tight. Yeah. Uh, but you can see, no, the first time I met Rafa, we didn't play like a match. We were practicing like December time in Barcelona. It was a very cold day. I woke up. I went to the place where we meet. And he was waiting for me like... Yes, short sleeve, like n- nothing on, like so cold. And I went with my jacket, with my, you know, the coat, everything. And I'm like, are you ready? And he was like, yeah, I'm ready whenever you're ready. So the first ball he hit, he just went like boom. And I was like, what? He came right out of the box, hot. Yeah. And I stopped the ball. I said, why you hit it so hard from the beginning? He was 16 years old. And he said, no, I hit it 100% from the beginning till the end. And was, I, it was Uncle Tony right there? Yeah, yeah. And I went like, <laughs> what? It was Uncle, and Carlos Costa, his agent. And I'm like, oh, Jesus. This is so special. And I was, at the time, I was uh, on the tour, like, playing very well. And I realized that he was special because he can practice with me easily. And he was 16 year, year old. So, um, Do you have a significant relationship with him and his group? I do have a great relationship with him and his group. Uh, very respectful. Uh, relation friendly as well and of course I mean he's uh, he has his own life and I respect that and I'm don't get into personal details with him but uh, yeah I, I like the way he treats me and uh, I do treat him nice as well and with a uh, lot of a lot of admiration towards him and what he does he is probably one of the hardest uh, workers in the tour or he works so hard like many others I have to say but in my opinion, his mentality, and he's so humble to be like such a big star, like a, such a big uh, reference in the world of sports in general, that it's so difficult to find that. And I'm very impressed for what he does and the way he does it. And I mean, you don't ever talk to Moya and be like, man, what's, what are you guys doing out there in Palma de Mallorca? I, I speak with Carlos from time to time about the way Rafa handles situations. And we are like, <laughs> we do this, like, <laughs> that's amazing. Because we've been there and we know how difficult it is to win matches and to handle with all the inside core, offside. And I remember losing to Carlos Moya and the fans of the of Roland Garros French Open. And he beat me once there, you know, and, and Rafa won 12 times Roland Garros, which is like, what? 
we've been there playing so many years and enjoying so much, but suffering, you know, and one day it's windy, one day you don't feel good, one day the opponent plays better, one day you wake up and you're sick. He doesn't care. He always overcome that. It's unbelievable. It is. 12, he's only, he's, he's still, he can still probably win another five. No, not five, but... Uh, not five? No, not five. Not five? No, I don't think so. Five, it's going to be too much. But, uh, but he's one not- or two more, yes. Why not? So you're so you you feel like he's coming to the back end of well he's he got won't play, like he won't play till he's thirty eight. Mm, I don't think so. You don't think so? Mm, I would doubt it. I, I still think he's still got like two three more years to for sure win slams. I'm I'm sure about that because he, if he's healthy, he can make like uh, three four more at least. What would you say about the way he hits the ball? What would you say about? the way that ball feels, what would you say about his movement? Well, I think the intensity he brings to the court, it's probably the biggest I ever seen. Because- uh, His intensity is unbelievable. Every point. Every point. Every point. Every point. And every day in practice. And every tournament. And every tournament. And every match. He needs to um, probably deal very well with, uh, with his calendar. It's very important, which I believe right now they're doing very well with that. He, let's say he wins Montreal and then he stays home. Well, he just don't, doesn't play for one or two weeks, you know, and then he, not not playing, he's practicing, of course, but he's getting ready for the Open. So he gets to the Open much fresh than before. So he doesn't need to play so many tournaments. In my opinion, he plays much better now, more aggressive. He creates better game. He comes to the net. He changes down the line with the forehand. His backhand, he improved a lot. And especially his serve is way better now than before. <laughs> you, I mean, what do you even it's say? Nearly, about? For me, it's nearly unbeatable. I mean, if he is healthy, we know that I think him and Novak are the, the hardest guys to beat. Of course, Roger is it's a magician, it's a legend, it's, uh, it's God in this way because he's unbelievable. But I think it's harder to beat Rafa and Novak if they are at their best because they are so difficult to win a point against them. Like, you don't see how to win a point. And even if you do that, you can't sustain that for five hours. You can't sustain it? No. Only between them, I would say. And, and Roger, like, okay, he played unbelievable at, at Wimbledon or whatever, but it's different kind of game, you know? If, like, here it's been a little bit slower the court, it's nearly impossible to win a point. By the way, Rafa Nadal has been to the finals now of... Three Grand Slams. Exactly. He's been to the semis of Wimbledon. Um, it is just one of the greatest things in sports that there's ever been. Definitely. I mean, in the way he does it. Because, you know, you've been involved in tennis and you see, like, how players can uh, complain or, you know, disagree with things. He, I never saw Rafa throwing a racket. I never saw Rafa swearing and saying bad things. He's always fighting and it doesn't matter where or when, you know he's always gonna give his best. And if he doesn't feel good, you know he's gonna try to find a solution to win that match, which it, for me, this is so important in tennis. What are your um, opinions about the ATP situation uh, with Kermode? Our sources tell us that basically Rafa has his group and Novak has his group and that it's a fight. Well, I really don't know about that fight where I believe it's, it's a shame that Kermode is going to go out because I think he's been doing a great job 
He's been uh, loyal to the players, to the, to the tournaments as well. I don't think it should be a fight or a war between players and tournaments. I think we both need each other. We should go hand by hand. We understand that everybody needs to defend their positions. But uh, I, I think that if someone wants to do something for tennis is great, as the players they do, because they get involved. I, I was the president of the Players' Council as well, back in the 97, 98. But it takes a lot of energy out of you, you know? So I think it's important to have people that they understand the game, and I think Chris understands it very well. And it's just, I, I just feel sorry that he's going to go out. I, I don't know who's going to come in, and I understand how that do, the players... How, no, how do you not know? Are you just telling me you don't know, or you just really don't know? No, I don't know if there is a uh, like a, a Rafa or, or Novaks or Roger or whatever. I would tell you, I, I really I'm not that involved on that to know what exactly happened. I'm just saying from outside, I'm a little surprised. I actually ran for the ATP board in Europe last year, which they told me, why don't you run? Because you've been there, you know how it works. And I did run and I didn't win. And I was a little surprised by the things that some of the players wanted, like... Uh, the way they want me to behave or to treat the tournaments. And I really disagree. I think you need to fight, you need to defend your position, but I don't think you need to go into a war. You need to dialogue, you need to have a good communication. And not just that, you can't um, bankrupt the tournaments. <laughs> no, no, I mean, the tournaments, I mean, you see the slams, and of course they, they make so much money, which is so good. And the players, they make so much money. And if they want like increase or so, they need to talk what, which kind of increase they can get, men and women, of course. And that's something that needs to be talked and needs to be mm, sitting down with people that represent. I don't know, I don't think it should be the players saying like, we want this, there is someone always which you need to go there and fight for that. But, but that's a job for a real executive, not, a, not a, an ex-player who's a TV broadcaster, man. Right? Absolutely. Right. But that's why I think it's good to have the board, then just give the ideas from the players, and then someone that really knows to deal with that, go for it. Let's move into our third set. This is the part of our show where we discuss our guest career. Okay. And I know that you grew up with brothers and sisters that love tennis. How did you come up, though? Did you come up at one club? or? Yeah, my parents, they used to play tennis just because they liked it. And my brothers, all the brothers, you know, they were a little older than me, two and three years or five years older. So I just played on Saturday, on Sunday, one or two hours a day, and I was okay, was happy. I started with judo, doing judo, but I had a guy that was much taller than me. Judo? Yeah. Broom, yeah, they kick you, and, bam, and then you go into the floor and you are like, da, 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 da. You like that? Oh, I, I, not much, because that, there was a guy that was like nearly killing me because he was much taller than me. And I said to my parents, okay, I just want to do something that I have the opponent far away, and that was tennis. And I was lucky enough to start winning lots of tournaments, and I have to say, I am the only male guy that won uh, the Spanish national under 12, under 14, under 16, under 18, and then the national. And, and I always say not even Rafa did that because Rafa at 17 or 18, he was winning Roland Garros, not the national of Spain, you know what I mean? But it's a record that it's funny to say. And that means that I was always, 
I was always going little by little, step by step, and that's where I played tennis. And hang on, so you did not travel to Miami or to no. Alicante or no. some Argentina? No, I always stayed in Barcelona. I grew up there with my coaches, with my family. They did like a special um, sort of like a schedule for me because I was practicing in the mornings and then my parents, they had a school where I can go study in the afternoon with teacher, which it was quite tough because I was only 10 years old, 11 years old, and I had to go with the teacher next to me the whole time. I didn't go to the class like with all the other students, you know, but it was worth it. I did it because I liked it. I have to tell you, so when I met you in 1996, I think, I remember your racket, yeah. You had a small grip. Yes. You had a four and a quarter. You know, we call we say four and a quarter in the United States. Yeah. And I asked you, I said, hey, man, look, can I see your hand? Yeah. And your hand is not small. It's like yeah. a regular size hand. I was like, how come you play with such a small grip? And you said, because you you can be very whippy with, yes, the, with it. Yes, I can move the racket faster. But I think that you're the beginning of that trend to a small grip. It was a small, and then... I changed it and I switched it to a bigger grip because I remember then especially playing on hard courts, like guys like Sampras or Krychek or Agassi or even Ichevers or so. They were serving so well that I needed like a bigger grip because otherwise my, my hand will twist. Too wristy. Yeah. Too, your hand would twist in the racket because yes. it was too small. Yes, because when you have time on clay, it was okay to make some spin. So but when you were playing on hard courts, you don't need that much spin. So you need to play a little bit flatter. And that's what I changed it to a bigger grip. You f To flatten out your strokes a little bit, not, yeah. not be so much. Yeah, exactly. I didn't realize that you moved to a bigger grip to adjust as time went on. Um, so, you know, did you battle with Carlos Moya and you know, David Ferrer. Did you see these guys as children or? No, actually we, we met later on the tour, like with Moya, with Ferrero, with Costa, with Berezacegui. Uh, Berezacegui a little bit, but he's one year older. Uh, then Ferrer came later, Rafa, of course. Uh, I was with Bruguera as well, you know, with Jordi Arrese, with Emilio Sanchez, Vicario. So we Javier up, Sanchez. Javier Sanchez, of course, you know, they were a little older. And then we grew up and we were playing against them. But you were kind of in your own little pocket. Who did, but who did you practice with? Like, how did you get so good to turn pro, man? Well, we had so many players in Spain, and especially in Barcelona. Really? And yeah, and we had uh, good coaches, good physical trainers, good place to practice, you know. We have good weather. We mainly practice outdoors the whole year. Uh, we improved a lot on hardcores when they built some hardcores because, believe it or not, at the beginning there were not too many hardcores. We didn't even have indoors because uh, we didn't need to. And then we adjust our game and uh, that's why we ended up playing much better on hardcores at the end than at the beginning. When did you realize that your life could be amazing in tennis? What was the moment that you... Well, it was a moment when I won the orange ball that was yeah. under 16 that I won. And then I realized that, okay, overall, I'm okay, you know, because I was winning in Spain, but never outside. That was a moment when I said, okay, now I have to go for it. And then... Did you beat anybody uh, interesting uh, in that tournament? Uh, not many that then they will become professionals, but... Uh, but still. But, but still, for me, it was very important, but, uh, you know... And then we were the same age with Kafelnikov, Thomas Inquist, Andrei Medvedev. You know, we were growing up together playing those tournaments. But the important moment was when I was 18. I was still a junior. 
And then I start qualifying in Barcelona. I won a round in Hamburg. I won, I beat Emilio Sanchez in the first round. Then in, in Rome, the same. Then I qualified at Roland Garros as, as well. And as I was a junior? Still, as a junior. And I didn't play juniors anymore. So then I finished the year like 86 in the world. I played my first ATP final. So that year it was the main, the first year that I realized that for sure I was going to be a, a, a tennis player. Well, you broke the top 100 as a yes, junior. Yes, as a junior. That was 92. <laughs> yeah. That's pretty good, man. Yeah, it was good. Yes. No bad. How would you describe your pro tennis career? Well, I will describe it as um, fully committed from what I did. Uh, I was lucky enough to leave my dream. Uh, I worked so hard since I was a little kid. And I was always dreaming to win something big, which it came when I won the Masters Cup, World Tour Finals. Uh, and you, by the way, you won a five-set final. Exactly. That's what they, they didn't play it three uh, sets, so it's a more <laughs> of an accomplishment. Yeah, actually, I was two sets to love down against Moya. I beat Pete Sampras in the semifinals. I had match point against me, like three match points he had. And then we won Davis Cup for Spain for the first time in the history of Spain, which it was a very nice achievement. I won um, a bronze medal doubles with Albert Costa in Sydney. I won 17 titles, including Indian Wells, which is one of my main wins. Uh, in the, the first time that they play in the new venue, you know, like year 2000, they switched it to that unbelievable venue. That Indian Wells. Indian Wells is, for me, probably one of the best tournaments of the year, if not the best. And then winning Rome as well. It was such an important moment for my life. And yeah, and again, I say like, the fact that now I feel relaxed with my tennis career is because I feel that I gave everything I had. You know, no regrets. And of course, I would have loved to improve and to win wrong arrows because I was two finals, semifinals, quarterfinals, blah, blah, blah. But I never won it, but not because I, I didn't try it, just because my opponents, they were better. A lot of people thought you were going to win the French Open. Um, Me too, man. Yeah. Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Should we cry? I don't know. I mean... No, we shouldn't, because uh, as I told you, I couldn't do better. It would, they were just a little bit better than It me. reminds me of Tim Henman's situation at Wimbledon. Yeah. A lot of people for a long time thought you were going to win the French Open. And then Moya... You lost to him in two finals. No, I oh, lost sorry. to him, him, and I lost to him, and then I lost to Guga, Querten. Oh. You know, I was up a set, up a break in the second. Did you get tight in those finals? No, well, you know what, I'm gonna tell you. First, they were a little better. They had a little bit more power than me, Moya and Querten. Both finals we played under horrendous and awful conditions, like so windy, like absolutely disgusting <sighs> like to play horrible. under those, those conditions. They were like, absolutely disaster to play. Like you've been dreaming to be in one of those finals of your life. You've been fighting and like working so hard to get to that Sunday, 3 p.m. in Paris. And all of a sudden the day is so bad that you don't feel the ball, you don't feel your legs, you don't feel anything. You just need to try to hang in there, but not enjoying at all. And that's the only thing I feel like, Jesus, it could have been like a regular day and see how good I could be, but they were better, and that's it. It's hard to play your best tennis um, yeah, when you you're distracted it, by but, uh, freezing, windy yeah, conditions. Yeah. Um, we have to talk about it. Uh, we're here in New York. 1996, you were really at the prime of your career. 
I was starting to believe that I could be a, ten, a good tennis player because then 96 I was growing, 97 I become top 10, and 98 I won the Masters. 96, you, 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 you blast to the quarters. Yeah, it was a shame. I never went to the quarters again. And uh, I like the f conditions here. I like the, you know, the, the courts. But there were like so many good hardcore players which they were difficult to beat. When you played Pete in the quarters, mm -hmm. You, you lost the first set, you win two tight sets to go up, two sets to one. Um, how are you feeling? Well, you know, Pete, it was like so difficult for us. He was so aggressive. He put so much pressure to us. I was very young and it was pretty much, I played 95 against Andre on that same court, night session, and I lost six to in the field. So I had a little bit of experience with that. But Pete was so annoying to play against him because he feels like he plays on his, his, himself. He just serves bombs. He comes to the net. When he you serve, he doesn't care. He just plays maybe one or two games the whole set, like he's focused, but then you feel like he wants to break you and then it makes you feel like so bad. So we get to the final set. I had a match point and he just jumped and just covered the net and just played like an unbelievable volley. And then he aced me at seven all of the breaker with the second serve. Second serve, and he was throwing up. And he was throwing up. But you also, when you got to your match point, you knifed a backhand cross court and then, yeah. <laughs> then covered the line mm. and knifed a forehand volley. Yeah, I played like a cross court forehand and he just played like an unbelievable volley. So, yeah. And then I double faulted to finish. So, yeah, it's what it is. But you know what? Two years later, then we played the Masters Cup. He had match point. We played exactly the same point. And while I was running to the forehand, I said, go down the line. So I went down the line and he missed the backhand volley. And then I won the match. So that's something that you had on your mind while you were running. You had the memory of two years before. What happened to you to finish your career? Um, I read only mm -hmm. and just learned that that you had an eye situation. Yeah, I had an eye situation. I was dropping on my rankings. I had the second baby with my wife. And uh, yeah, one day I was practicing and then I felt like I, I don't see very well. So I went to see my eye and they said I had something and I had a surgery and then I lost like 70% of the vision of my eye. So I had to stop and then I recovered quite well, but never enough to become a professional player anymore. So it was like sort of like, okay, this is it, uh, you need to take the decision and that's when I retire. Because actually if I, if I do this and I just put my hand in my right eye and I only see with my left eye, I really see very bad. You had like a real condition. Uh, we don't know, we actually don't know. We never know if it was like my little baby who kicked, she kicked me with the food while she was sleeping with us in the bed because I saw like some stars, some like lining thing. But I can't relate it to that. So I really don't know if it was like that or it was just consequence of life. Amazing. How did you handle retirement? It was okay, you know why? Because uh, I know it's always tough and it's always tricky, but uh, I felt like I gave everything I had. I never thought that I had to retire thinking like, oh, I still had the chance to win slams, which it, it would have been probably the only thing I could have done differently because I won the Master Thousand, I won the Master's Cup, Davis, whatever. I knew that even if I was healthy, I was not going to be able to win a slam because my level dropped, my condition, my movement. So it, it was, okay, it's enough. Well, listen, you carried yourself in an extremely dignified way throughout your career. Um, 
I hope you feel proud about your career, man. Number two in the world, incredible. I feel proud about my career. Just I was three matches away to become number one in Australia. I lost to Christian Ruud, the Norwegian, which his son now is Casper Ruud. Casper Ruud. Again, another such a windy day. I don't know why, you know, Craig, there is something that kills me. New York, Paris, Melbourne, places where we play the slams, it's always wind. Don't ask me why. But it's mainly places where somehow it's always like changing weather, like dramatically. You know, you go to Indian Wells, okay, you can have one day sandstorm or whatever, but usually it's like great or so. It's one day that it's so windy, but usually it's like it stays nice, you know, but like you go to Miami, wind, so much wind, like, you know. So I was a, a very bad player under windy conditions because I, I like the feeling and the timing. I want to stay there and wait and hit the ball. So if the ball was moving too much, I felt like I lost control. Do you have any regrets? The only thing I felt I would have loved to come to the States for a period of my life, like let's say for three, four months, to be here, to practice with the hardcore players, to improve my game, to surf better, to be more aggressive, to gain more power on my forehand. That's something that I could say I would have done it now, knowing that it would help my game, like practicing like a period with Pepe Higueras or with Jim Courier, you know, like with, with Andre, you know, with some of the guys that I would have learned so much from them, or Tom Martin, you know. At the time, it, it was good because they, were, they had something like David Wheaton playing, you know, like very like American guys that they were very aggressive. That would have been good for me to maybe practice with them more, Malibu, Washington, you know, like these kind of guys that would have been nice. But at the time, I felt like I wanted to stay home. I wanted to be with my family, with my girlfriend, with my friends. It was tough for me to leave Barcelona and, and go for, for a different country. And there's not a lot of crossover. It's always seemed like the Spanish players or the French players. You kind of stay with your people. Yeah. But we you are think, very familiar guys, yeah. But you, you would have been a nice move. I would have loved to just move maybe to California for a little while or Miami or somewhere like I could practice outside, you know, improve my game. But, uh, you know, that's something that I will just maybe tell if I help someone sometimes to say, okay, go for it, move on and don't, don't, don't stay there, just improve. Let's move into our fourth set. We call this the 10 ball scramble. It's word association. So I say it, okay. and you say what comes into your mind. Okay. Favorite city? Barcelona. Favorite tournament? Indian Wells. Favorite court? Could be any court. Uh, favorite court, it was the uh, Gestad court. It was so nice. You love the, the Gestad center court? Altitudia, and it was beautiful, surrounded by mountains, yeah. You won that tournament? Yeah. Who'd you beat? I won three times. I beat uh, Becker the last time. I beat Puerta, another one, and Gau Gaston Gaudia, Argentina. Three-time winner in Gestad. Yeah. Loves that court. Yeah. Your favorite forehand? It could be anyone, like from yeah. now or from before. Any, anything well, you want. On clay, I would say Rafa for sure. On hardcore, Pete Sampras. Pete Sampras, um, underrated forehand. Yeah, I think him and uh, Berasategui on clay, you know, he was just destroying the <laughs> that, forehand. That's different level, though. that's yeah, different. Yeah, yeah. Favorite backhand? I would say Djokovic on hardcourts, Agassi, and probably on clay, uh, Guga Querten. Guga. Yeah. Favorite volleys? Stefan Edberg and Patrick Rafter. And your favorite serve? Pete Sampras. 
Toughest opponent you ever faced? Uh, on on Harcourt, Jevgeny Kafelnikov, he was like so tough for me. On Clay, Muster and Quirton, they were very difficult to beat. Albert Costa. He's a good friend. Uh, he took his chance to win the Roland Garros, which he was absolutely unexpected. And I think he has an unbelievable uh, talented player, yeah. Carlos Costa. Wow, so much talent on his hands. Huge backhand, nice drop shots, great volleys, good vision. Um, such a talented guy. Too. Manolo Santana. <laughs> Manolo is a genius. He's just special. He's uh, someone that brings so much to Spanish uh, people, to Spanish sport, and it's, um, it's a legend for us. Your favorite restaurant in New York City? I do not have a favorite restaurant in New York City. That's a shame because I really don't have that much time to hang out. So I would love someone to tell me and to advise me. We got to work on that for you. Yeah. This is our fifth and final set. We call it the king of the court. Okay. If you could be the king of tennis for a moment and be able to make a change in the sport with just, you know, sort of one swing of the racket, what would it be? Well, I would, I would love to see more show, like more entertainment, something that brings people to get involved. What's uh, an example, for example? The problem is like tennis is so difficult mentally that you need to be very focused. And I would love to see the people like very, like in a silent situation when the ball is on play. But I would love to see them like, shouting and singing or screaming or putting music between points or some, something that it will create like an atmosphere and then boom, everybody quiet. Like excitement and quiet, excitement and quiet. I know it's very difficult, but it's something that, you know. Sounds like Davis Cup. Yeah, something like that. Uh, I don't like the coach being on the court. I like to let people, like let coaches say whatever and talk and make signs because I don't like the chair empire to be a police guy watching into the bench. Like if, oh, the coach did a sign, oh, let's put a warning. Or I don't even like when you say like, oh, Jesus, shit, whatever. And they're like, oh, warning. I think it should be a little bit more open and, and not to be that strict because if, if, if not, you become not natural. And I think the more natural you are, the better you are. You want to see more personality. Yes. With respect, with education, and uh, with manners. Uh, not everything it, it can be, and uh, I think you should control that too. If you need a reminder of how good this guy was, go on YouTube, take a look because he was one of the real catalysts of Spanish tennis. And the reason you see Feliciano Lopez and Juan Carlos Ferrero and Rafa and all these players, don't, don't sleep on Alex Carreccia. He did a lot in tennis. And uh, thank you for talking with us, man. It's been a pleasure. Hi to everyone. I hope you enjoy. And of course, uh, I will follow this thing. My man, Carefully. you are released. Okay, man. <laughs> Muchas gracias. Thank you all for listening. Remember, it is Stan Smith September. To hear the interview, get entered into the giveaway, and help keep the under-review train moving, please head on over to patreon.com slash underreviewtennis. P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash underreviewtennis. We really appreciate all of your support. Huge thank you to Alex Korecha. 
Big thank you to Lou Scher and Michael Karsh. Thank you all for listening. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe, rate, and review us. Tell your friends. We can be found wherever you get your podcasts. We also love hearing from you. So if you have a topic you want explored or a person you want to hear from, please let us know. Our email is info at underreviewtennis.com. At you are with CS is our Twitter handle. Under Review Tennis is our Instagram and Facebook. And to catch some clips from some of our interviews, please check out our YouTube page. Our producer is Scott Tuft, and our music is by Brian Senti. Jason Binning did our mix. We'll be back next time with more of the most interesting voices in the sport. Until then, I'm Craig Shapiro, and you are released. <laughs>